Why do you say that, Father? You aren't afraid, are you? No. But I respect some of the superstitions of others. Often they are founded in fact. Broadcasting live from our Sanctum Sanctorum in Venice, California, this is the Sixth Sense Society. I'm your host, Krista, here with our producer, Michael, and today we have back on the show my father, Dr. George Schwimmer, who's going to do part two of Lee Harvey Oswald. We did part one at the beginning of the year, and we, we sort of titled it Conspiracy Theory and then went into the some of the ideas of the two Oswalds based on my father's book, Doppelganger, The Legend of Lee Harvey Oswald. And um, today we're going to talk more about the many untruths and false scenarios cr- crafted by the CIA, Dallas Police, FBI, and the Warren Commission to try the, to frame, quote-unquote, the lone nut. But before we get started, Michael has a few announcements. Hi, everybody, and welcome to our broadcast again. And we are super excited to have you here. Um, we love that our audience keeps growing and keep telling people about us. That's always a great thing to do. And if you are watching for the first time, hit the subscribe button, and subscribers do help us a lot. Um, we have some really great shows coming up. We have Jason Miller, who's an occult author and ceremonial magician next week, who was on our panel of, uh, of occult people just a few weeks ago. And we're really excited to have him one-on-one, so that should be fantastic. And we're lining up all kinds of great shows for August. Brad Cronin is going to be here doing some astrology. We have um, Dan Moore coming back on to talk about some of Kabbalah and some of the things he's up to again. So lots of cool stuff. And get all the information on our website, sixcentsociety.com, S-I-X-T-H, all spelled out. And while you're there, you can register for our newsletter. One just came out, and it gives you some links to our recent episodes and some other cool stuff that we find and announcements so that you kind of know what we're up to. Um, and if you can afford it, buy us a coffee on Ko-Fi, which really helps us to cover our production costs. And uh, and if not, we still love you and hope all of you tune in, And because really we just love doing the show for all you guys. So uh, we've got a lot to get into, so I'm not going to take up too much time today. So I'm going to kick it back to you. So take it away, Krista. Thanks, Michael, and welcome, Dad. Greetings. Good to be back. Well, I know you're going to have a lot to cover on this topic. That's why part of the reason we have part two. So let's jump right on in. Okay. As I uh, uh, described uh, in the the first podcast, um, there were two Lee Harvey Oswalds. One was actually born with the name Lee Harvey Oswald, and the other one, who everybody knows as Lee Harvey Oswald. Uh, was given a name by either the Office of Naval Intelligence or by the CIA. And uh, eventually both uh, men wound up uh, being run by the CIA. This, the, the murder of John Kennedy is the greatest murder mystery uh, in American history, maybe world history. And uh, the reason, one of the reasons for it is that People, even today, uh, have not had the framework in which to comprehend it. I ran across this some years ago. It's a psychological phenomenon that if you don't have a framework, you can't recognize certain things. Hmm. Uh, and uh, one of the, the, you know, the main thing, uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh, that uh, everybody has uh, uh, failed to recognize and even refused vehemently uh, to recognize is that there were two uh, Lee Harvey Oswald. Uh, It sounds, you know, too much like Hollywood. But uh, you have to understand that this was run by the CIA, which is a premier intelligence agency. And their uh, main uh, tools are confusion and invention and hiding things and uh, they deliberately uh, mix everything up. Uh, the, the equivalent I, I, I use, uh, the analogy I use 
is, uh, you know, most people talk about a jigsaw puzzle. Well, uh, imagine having three jigsaw puzzles all mixed together in a bin somewhere mm. and uh, see how long it takes you to figure out, first of all, that there are three jigsaw puzzles and then to go and separate the pieces so that you can uh, finally solve uh, uh, the puzzle. So uh, what I'd, I'd like to read three quotes which uh, show you know, the essence of what this is all about. The first one came from Sherlock Holmes, <laughs> Arthur Conan Doyle. Huh. And a lot, of, a lot of people have quoted this uh, sentence. When you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. And this is exactly what happened with me. When I started out, it's just, it seemed insane. You know, every, every, time, every book I picked up, it seemed to contradict uh, another book. And so the second quote is, this is from Douglas Holm, who was a chief analyst of military records for the Assassination Records Review Board in 1994 to 1998. He wrote in a book that, quote, of greater importance is understanding that the federal government covered up the facts of the president's death in the most brazen and outrageous manipulation of physical evidence in any murder case in American history. This wow. is a guy who was in the government, worked for the government for four years, and this is what he wrote in a book. That's the incredible. The third one is from Roger Ebert, the film critic, reviewing the film JFK in December of 1991. He wrote, quote, the achievement of the film is that it tries to marshal the anger which ever since 1963 has been gnawing away in some dark shelf of the national psyche. Now, you know, a lot of time, a lot, a lot of people uh, uh, want to put things uh, uh, in the past and forget about it. And this is what, you know, all of Trump supporters are doing right now. Oh, let's not, uh, you know, uh, dig up all this stuff again. Unfortunately, it, if you don't uh, show what actually happened, then you get terrible things happening again. Mm -hmm. And one of the, one of the uh, earliest uh, literary examples of this are Oedipus the King by Sophocles and Hamlet uh, by Shakespeare. And in both plays, uh, the society is being uh, decimated and uh, put into turmoil because the, there was a secret about the death of the ruler. Well, we had the same thing happen now with Kennedy. Mm -hmm. And uh, because this was never acknowledged and never uh, shown uh, to be a conspiracy, guess what happened? Bobby Kennedy got killed. Mm -hmm. Martin, Luther, uh, uh, Martin Luther King got killed. Um, uh, let me see who else. Malcolm yeah, X. Malcolm, Malcolm X. So, it, and not only that, but... Uh, we had uh, people uh, claim that up to uh, and exceeding probably 100 witnesses were killed. And we know a number of them. Uh, there's, there's no question about it. They, they were killed. And uh, so you get all of that. And if that weren't enough, then, then we get the, the Vietnam War and completely change the whole world. I mean, literally. Mm. Uh, anybody who was living at that time and who, you know, lived through those years, the 1960s and 1970s were absolutely insane. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we had the Vietnam War and Kennedy had uh, given an order to stop the war. Johnson, the day after Kennedy died, uh, changed that. Mm. Then we had, the, we had a continuation of the Cold War, which Kennedy was stopping. Mm -hmm. And it brought us at least three and possibly four presidents who at the very least knew about the assassination ahead of time and or helped to cover it up. Johnson and Nixon knew about it ahead of time. Ford helped to cover it up. And some people feel that uh, uh, George H.W. Bush was somehow involved because he was connected with the CIA. 
Of course, wow. there's, no, there's no proof of that. Right. right. Now, I want to, again, uh, stress that the CIA plan carried out the hits, and that the main tool is obfuscation, secrecy, and especially creating confusion. Now, what, what, I'll give you just one small example of what having two men with the same names and looking somewhat alike. Harvey was the guy who worked in the uh, depository, the CIA clone, was described as a clean and well-kept, courteous young man who did not drink. He's described this way across the board and everything I've ever read. However, reporter and author Jim Mars from uh, Dallas wrote that some people who he interviewed in New Orleans later met Lee in New Orleans, described him as, quote, dirty, disheveled, and a swearing hard drinker. Hmm. Now, you, you can't, you, can't uh, you know, make any sense out of that if it's one person. It's not sure. possible. Okay. Now, you can hide an awful lot of things, but there are some things, no matter how hard you try to hide them, that you can't hide them. And I just found one recently, which is kind of crazy, mm. considering I'm in, I've been doing this research for 12 years. Mm. But it was right in front of my face the whole time, except I didn't have a framework. <laughs> okay? It just proved what I just said. And I went to look for a, uh, for some reason I decided to see if there were any books about Margaret Oswald. So I went on Amazon and I found one book. And uh, so like everybody, I go and check the uh, comments of the readers. And this one re a reader says, well, you know, Margaret Oswald didn't have a Southern accent. In fact, she sounds like she came from Hoboken or Long Island. And I sort of went, Oh, my Lord. And so I immediately went to YouTube, and I found uh, two or three uh, clips of her. Not a trace of a southern accent. Hmm. Not, not one tiny sound. And she did sound like she was from Long Island, because I lived in Long Island. Mm -hmm. And so then... Uh, and she was I, supposed to be from the South? Is that why she should have had the southern accent? She was born in New Orleans. Ah, she was born in New Orleans. She grew up in New Orleans. She lived in New Orleans until she was about 60 years old. Mm -hmm. You know, the real one. Right. Okay. And I may have mentioned last time uh, that uh, uh, Harvey uh, also did not have a, a southern accent. And his Russian was perfect. Uh, everybody who was Russian knew, knew him. And so I listened to some of his clips on YouTube, not a trace of Southern accent. Now, I lived in New Orleans for a year. I lived in Texas for a year. I lived in Georgia for a year. I lived in North Carolina for 10 years. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you right now, nobody who was born and lives in those states escapes without an accent. <laughs> and so I went online and I found Robert Oswald, who was an older brother of uh, Lee, Lee Oswald, he had a very thick uh, New Orleans accent, and he even mentioned uh, uh, when he was testifying for the Warren Commission that his accent was so thick that when he moved to Texas, he had trouble communicating with people in school. Wow. So, if nothing else, that immediately it tells you something is very fishy. Okay. So what I want to do is, uh, we're going to uh, pick up uh, uh, on uh, November 22nd, but just before we do that, I want to mention one incident. I don't know if I mentioned last time or not. But uh, two days before the assassination, on Wednesday night, uh, Harvey called his uh, lover, Judith Barry Baker, in New Orleans, and he told her he expected to be killed on Friday. Okay. Wow. And then on Thursday, he went to Irving, where his wife and two small daughters were living. And in previous weeks, he had gone 
on Fridays and stayed the weekend. And this time he went on Thursday and came back uh, to Dallas on Friday. And the Warren Commission tried to say that, oh, he went there on Thursday to pick up his rifle. Of course, he had no rifle. But the reason I believe that he went there on Thursday was that he expected to die the next day, and he wanted to see his two little daughters for the last time. And that was the last time he did see them. Okay. Now, one of the things you want to keep a focus on, whether I mention it or not, but I, I'll tell you ahead of time, is Harvey wore a long-sleeved, a tweed, uh, brown patterned, rust brown patterned shirt with the top three buttons torn off, and he wore it outside of his pants. It was just hanging down. Lee, on the other hand, wore a white T-shirt, and the, the two are never seen the same way. Nobody ever saw a red shirt, a, a, a red-brown shirt in any window of the uh, a school, a school depository. Nobody ever saw a man running out of a, a Texas school depository with a brown shirt on. They had two separate shirts, and I'll get into that a little bit later also. Okay. Now, the number of lies that were told uh, were just phenomenal. I don't know if I can get into all of them, but I'll just mention uh, some. I believe that there were eight people who lied who worked in the Texas School Depository building. I believe that two of them were involved in the plot. Uh, one was the uh, superintendent, uh, Roy S. Trolley. And the other one was uh, William Shelley, who uh, he later said that he, uh, he had worked for the CIA at one time. Mm. And the others, I believe, were threatened uh, to uh, comply with whatever statements they were supposed to be making. And uh, there was a total of uh, eight of them. And in addition, there were at least 12 to 15 policemen, detectives, uh, district attorneys, uh, and so on. And uh, uh, Alan Dulles, who was the fired uh, chief of the CIA, uh, Kennedy fired him, told the Warren Commission that CIA agents were expected to lie. And somebody said, you know, you mean even in court? He said, oh, yes. So you can't trust a single word a CIA agent says, even today. Because that's, that's what crazy. To yeah, that's what they're trained to do. Huh. The other thing with intelligence agents, there's no such thing as an ex-CIA agent. You know, the CIA yeah. will find them and they will use them, uh, you know, 20 years after they left the agency. So, you know, it, it's, it's an old saying, once CIA, always CIA. Hmm. Okay. Now, one of the things that got me very confused early on in the uh, investigation was somebody would describe something taking place somewhere, and I tried to imagine what it looked like in my head, and I couldn't. And so finally, I was fortunate enough online to go and find uh, certain images, which uh, I will describe, but I'll try to make as short as possible. First of all, is the, uh, the Texas School Book Depository. It was 100 feet uh, wide in the front, 110 feet deep. It was seven stories high. It had six sets of two windows, double windows, uh, across each uh, floor. And uh, the uh, entranceway was... Uh, Oh, on, on the right side was east, on the left side it was west, and then on the back it was the north, and the front was the south. And the front uh, corner, front uh, right corner, that's, that's the southeast corner, was the entrance into the building. There were six steps and a landing. There was a double glass door, and you walked through, and there was a little lobby about uh, 10 feet uh, uh, wide and long. And to the right of that, there was a little storeroom. And keep this in mind now, little storeroom. And to the right of that were the stairs going up to the second floor where there was a large 
secretarial uh, area. And north of the stairway was a passenger elevator. And then there was another set of double glass doors. And then when you went straight back, there was a door going out of the building, which went on to a loading dock, and there were some steps going down to the ground. And then to the northwest corner, that's your left and back, were a set of two freight elevators. And then to the left of them were a, stair, uh, a set of rickety stairs, wooden stairs that were built about 1903. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you need to get some sense of that uh, from what I'm going to tell you what uh, uh, happened. Now, the key to what happened that day, which as far as I'm knowing, uh, I'm the only one I think that has figured this out. And I believe it, and uh, you'll believe it too when I uh, finish telling you about this. And that was uh, between uh, Officer Baker and uh, Mr. Truly. And they are the keystone of the events. Then a young lady, lady named Vicki Adams, who was a uh, secretary, and she was on the fourth floor uh, of the uh, depository with several other women looking, looking at the, the uh, motorcade. And then there were three uh, men, workers, on the fifth floor eating lunch, and there were three men who eventually ran out the back door. Okay, so nothing, nothing uh, before about noon uh, is uh, significant. However, at 11.45, a crew of men working on the sixth floor were led downstairs by their foreman, Bill Shelley. It's one of the people I said who was involved. Right. And the reason, and they were, they were led down at 11.45. And the reason I mentioned that is because one of the men later testified that they always went down at 11.55 because ah. the lunch hour was noon. And so why did they go 10 minutes early and why were they, quote, led down by the uh, uh, Bill Shelley? Mm. Okay. Now, at 12.15, witnesses outside saw two men in the southwest six-floor double windows. One of those men was Lee Oswald. He had a rifle with a uh, telescopic sight. He had a white shirt. And there was another another man standing next to him. Now, just that's all you need to know. I don't have to tell you anything else, because that was an outside witness standing out in the plaza, seeing two men at the other end of the building from where Lehar Oswald supposedly had his right quote, sniper's nest. Okay, at the other end of the building, about five minutes later, somebody else saw two other men. One of the men had a rifle. One of the men had sort of a dark complexion. Hmm. Okay. So, at noon, Harvey was seen by a couple of people, and he told one of the workers, I'm going upstairs to eat. Well, what he meant was he was going up to the second floor where there was a lunchroom, and there was a Coke machine, mm-hmm. and where he normally ate his lunch despite other people claiming he ate down in the first floor in a place called Domino Room, because he was seen at 12.15 by one of the secretaries, mm-hmm. and she testified to that. Uh, Carolyn R. Arnold. And, okay. Oh, okay, so then the, the second floor I want to describe is the second floor. You go up those uh, little stairs, uh, from the front, and uh, then you go through a little hallway, and there's a big uh, secretarial pool area with a lot of desks for various secretaries. And then right in back of that 
is a door that leads into a little uh, anteroom that goes into the lunchroom on the right, and there's another door to the left of that that goes into the hallway that uh, where the uh, staircase and the elevators are. Okay, so there's a double door going to the lunchroom right. and one door coming into the secretarial pool. Okay, at 12.15, somebody saw Harvey sitting in the lunchroom. Now, here's where it all starts coming apart. <laughs> and when I, first started, uh, when I first started reading this stuff, I said, I don't understand this. This policeman, Marion Baker, and Roy Truly uh, gave an account to the Warren Commission. And then uh, a lady, uh, I'm not quite sure what her name is, but anyway, she was one of the supervisors, and she gave another account. And they were both in the same general area. And I said, I don't understand how this works. So let me tell you what these guys said, because there are three different accounts, not one. Okay. Hmm. The first one, Officer Baker filled out a report, which policemen are required to do, mm -hmm. turned it in either late afternoon or early evening. And he said, he met a man, he, he ran upstairs looking for uh, this uh, assassin, and he met a man on the third or fourth floor. Hmm. And the man I saw was a white man, approximately 30 years old, five foot nine, 165 pounds, dark hair, and wearing a light brown jacket. Okay. Harvey was 23 years old. He weighed 135 pounds. He was five foot nine. He did not have dark hair, and he was not wearing a light brown jacket. In fact, he did not wear a jacket that day, even though the Warren Commission bent over backwards, sideways, and inside out, trying to show that Harvey was wearing a jacket of some kind that mm -hmm. day. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's the first report. The following day, the Dallas Daily News published a very long article, which I managed to get hold of, and the reporter named Ken, uh, Kent Biffle said he overheard Superintendent Truly tell uh, Chief of the Detectives, Will Fritz, that Biffle wrote, in a storage room on the first floor, the officer, gun drawn, spotted Oswald. Okay. Okay, so Oswald <laughs> is either on the third or fourth floor or, or on, on the, the first, first floor. floor. <laughs> reported by the same two men. That's not the end of it. Okay. Now, that comes the real... Coup d'etat, a total, absolute fabrication. Here's the story that these two guys said. Baker said he was riding on his motorcycle when he heard a shot, and uh, he, heard a, he heard a sound, and he immediately knew it was a rifle shot. Well, he was the only one in Dealey Plaza that knew that. Because everybody else reported they thought it was a firecracker. It did not have the sound of a rifle shot. Mm. And I believe what that was was it was a rifle shot, but it was a bullet that was purposefully uh, had less uh, gunpowder in it for various reasons. I won't get into it right now. But anyway, he was the only one who heard this shot. So then he says uh, he immediately raced his uh, motorcycle to the corner of Elm and Houston jumped off his motorcycle, ran through the crowd, up the front steps. At that point, Roy truly saw him, and he started running after Baker, and he caught up with Baker. And now Baker's uh, 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 first fairy tale, I don't remember if it was in this one or if it was uh, in one of the others, he said he went into the building and saw a bunch of men standing around, and he asked one of them where, where he could go up to the roof. Well, there were no men standing around, number one. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
So we'll just, uh, that's one of the little lies he told. Anyway, they went through there and truly followed him and somehow they made connections. And so then uh, truly said, oh, I'll lead you up to the roof. And they ran over to the elevators and uh, truly claimed that the elevator elevators were hung up on the fifth floor. And he claimed he yelled up the, uh, I don't know how he could see they were up on the fifth floor, you know, but that's what he claimed. And uh, he claimed he, uh, then that he yelled up the uh, elevator shaft, send the elevator down, but nobody sent the elevator down. So they started running up the, the steps and uh, Truly was first and uh, Baker was following him and they got to the second floor and Truly uh, started going to the third floor and Baker then said he claimed he saw a motion to his right and he saw this door closing and so he ran over and he opened the door and uh, he spotted uh, Lee Harvey Oswald. He didn't know the name, of course, but he spotted Lee Harvey Oswald. Well, uh, any number of people have uh, examined his account and said it was impossible. He could not see Harvey uh, because of the double doors. It wasn't it's physically impossible to see him. Anyway, that's what he claimed. So he claimed that he, he was in the lunchroom and... Uh, he had his gun drawn, and uh, he asked him who he was. And at that point, uh, Truly came in. I don't know how they all fit in there. But anyway, <laughs> Truly came in, and uh, he said, oh, he works here. And so then uh, Truly and Baker ran up the steps and went up to the fifth floor where they found the elevators and then took an elevator up to the seventh floor and then ran up to the roof and found nothing there which is a little peculiar because a couple of hours later, detectives found a rifle up there. But that's beside the point. Okay. So how did they get away with so many lies when they did it at the time? No one really wanted to say uh, that, hey, your stories don't match? Okay, Lena, I'll tell you why they did. Okay. The other story was, uh, uh, I can't remember this woman's name. Uh, but anyway, this uh, supervisor came in, and she got frightened. She, she realized that were, uh, shots she was outside, and she realized there were shots, so she immediately ran into the building, and uh, or a minute later, I don't know, but she ran in very quickly. And she ran up the front stairs into the uh, secretary area, and as she started crossing to her desk, she said, Lee Harvey Oswald, uh, passed her coming from the uh, lunchroom and in his right hand was an open bottle of Coke. He was wearing a white t-shirt, no jacket, and uh, a pair of pants. I don't know if she said, she said she called them wash pants. I don't know what that was. Hmm. Maybe, maybe those were uh, blue jeans. But anyway, this was my confusion, you see, because within the space of a couple of seconds, Lee Harvey Oswald is supposedly not holding a bottle of a Coke and is wearing a brown jacket. And a couple of seconds later, he is suddenly in another room with a white shirt holding an open bottle of Coke. And I kept going back and forth. Well, why did he take off his jacket? Well, uh, where did the Coke come from? And I couldn't make any sense out of it. Mm. Okay. And it took me a long, long time before I finally dawned on me. This is all a lie. Baker, ba Baker and truly made up the whole thing with the cooperation of the CIA and the Warren Commission. Okay? Very curiously, starting at 12.15, the police broadcast a description of the shooter as having a brown, light brown jacket and being 165 pounds. Now, where the hell did they get that from? Hmm. Okay, and then for the rest of the day, they eventually claimed that the killer was wearing a light brown jacket, which she was, but it wasn't, it wasn't Harvey. Okay. Why was this fairy tale made? Okay. The account that Baker and 
truly cooked up, was cooked up for them. They didn't make this up. This was cooked up for them by the Warren Commission. Okay, and the reason they cooked it up was because the lady who saw him saw him at the same time. And so they couldn't have him on the third or fourth floor and have this lady see him on the second second floor. Mm. So they cooked up this story that Harvey was on the second floor and then he could have walked out into this uh, uh, secretary area and be seen by this lady. Mm-hmm. Okay. Only little problem with that, there were some witnesses who contradict the whole thing. This lady who I mentioned, Vicki Adams, on the fourth floor, for some reason, when the shots were fired, she decided she wanted to go downstairs and find out what's going on. So she grabbed one of her friends, Sandra Stiles, and they ran to the back of the building and ran down these rickety stairs, four floors, ran out the back door, across the loading dock, down the steps and around the back of the building going west, going left. And when Vicki testified, she said she did not see Truly and Baker running up the steps. Mm. Well, Truly and Baker, it would have taken about 50 seconds from the time that Baker got off his bike and ran to the elevators. Vicky said it took one minute for her to run down. That means she would have run into them. She testified she did not run into them. Mm-hmm. Okay? And Truly and Baker testified they did not run into her. Well, who's lying now? Not only that, but the Warren Commission changed Vicky's testimony. And in the testimony, she is said to be that she saw Shelley and another worker, uh, Billy Love Lady, standing around, standing around. President has just been killed, and there's two guys standing around by the elevators. Right. Unlikely. Unfortunately, Shelley and Love Lady testified they were out front on the steps. And after the shooting, they went running up to the grassy knoll. And after about five minutes, they came back in again. And so then Vicky was asked, well, did you hear, uh, did you hear uh, anybody shouting uh, around the elevator? And she said, no. And they said, well, did you hear anybody coming up or down the steps? And she said, no. Okay, so that pretty well kills uh, uh, Baker and Truly's story. In addition, there were three black guys on the fifth floor eating lunch and looking out a window just below the so-called sniper's nest. And after the shots, they uh, ran over to a window uh, on the uh, west side of the building on the sixth floor uh, to see if they could see anything uh, with the grassy knoll. And then... After about a minute, they decided to go down, and they said there was no elevator. This is the fifth floor. Mm-hmm. Remember, this is the fifth floor where the elevators were supposedly hung up, right? Mm-hmm. So they didn't see any elevators, so they ran down the steps. Okay. So they did not meet Truly and Baker coming up the steps. They didn't see anybody coming up the steps. They didn't hear anybody coming up the steps. One other thing which I found just a year ago, and this is why you know research is really weird. You find things in the strangest places at the strangest times. I don't know what I was doing on the internet, but for some reason I ran across a chat room about the assassination. So like always, I started reading it. And guess what I read? I read this guy had interviewed Sandra Stiles, Vicky's friend, 30 years later. Hmm. And, and Sandra said that after the assassination, Vicky told co-workers that she saw the elevator cables moving. Hmm. Okay. The elevators were supposedly was non-functional. Not, not functioning, yeah. 
because so, somebody had turned off the electricity. Well, somebody did, but they didn't do it at that time. Can I ask you something then? Where where do you think the Officer Baker and Truly were in the building? Like if, if no one saw them when they, when they said that they were in, where, were they there at all or just not okay. when they said they were? Okay. I don't know. I will tell you my theory, and it's only a theory. Mm-hmm. But remember the two sets of glass doors. Okay, the front glass door and the next glass door. Then remember that the report that Baker and Truly saw, quote, Lee Harvey Oswald. Mm -hmm. And they saw him in the little storeroom. Okay. Now, Lee, Lee, how did Lee get to the second floor? Vicky did not hear him or anybody else run down the stairs. She was asked that seven, several times. Hmm. As I mentioned, those stairs were 60 years old, made out of wood. And the, and the employees were even instructed not to use those stairs. Hmm. Okay. So... Lee, 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 Lee did not come down the stairs. Nobody heard him come down the stairs. There were three other men up there, one shooter and two spotters. Nobody heard him come down the stairs. However, two witnesses saw three men run out from behind the, the, the depository building. Two of them jumped into a car, and the third one went walking south down Houston Street. So those were your three other conspirators. How did they get there? Hmm. They didn't run down the stairs. Elevator? Elevator! <laughs> Everybody said the elevator didn't work. But the elevator did work. And there was one employee of the depository who testified that he took the elevator up to the Fifth or sixth floor, I don't remember who she was. Fifth or sixth floor at 1230. Kennedy was assassinated at 1230 and 47 seconds. Mm. He is going up the elevator on his lunch hour when everybody else is watching the president out front. So guess who took him down on the elevator? This guy took the elevator up to the sixth floor. As soon as the people got finished firing at Kennedy, they ran to the elevator. They got into the elevator, including Lee Oswald. The guy took the elevator down, which Vicky saw moving. And he must have dropped Lee off at the second floor and then continued on down to the ground floor. And the guys ran off out of the building uh, in the back. Mm-hmm. And that is the only way that could have happened. Now, going back to your question about Baker and Truly. Okay, all of this took place in about two minutes. You know, all of this talk, uh, all of this stuff I'm telling you is taking forever to tell, but it only took took two minutes, all of it. Okay, two minutes. So two minutes after the shooting, Baker and Truly see Lee Oswald in the little... uh, storage room. Lee was seen there also by the vice president of the depository. I don't know how they all fit together there, but anyway, those two guys say they saw him. So what does that tell us? That tells us there's two minutes missing. Where did those two minutes go between the time that Baker and Truly ran into the foyer and Lee Oswald came down into the little room? Did they just stand around waiting to lean their thumbs? Mm, not okay. likely. I have a theory, but I can't think of any other theory that fits. My theory is Baker did not run into the depository by chance. He had that as an assignment. He was one of the plotters. 
His first assignment was to make sure that the three men escaped. Mm. So I believe he left truly by the second glass doors, ran back, saw the three guys run through, made sure they exited, and then he ran back and joined truly. Mm. At, at that time, Lee Oswald came down. Okay? That is the only way I can figure it out. I can't, I can't imagine anything else they could have done. Mm-hmm. Okay, that was Baker's first assignment. I believe his second assignment was to kill Lee Harvey Oswald. Okay? Because if he would have killed Harvey, the case would have been over. Mm. Okay, here was this lone, crazy gunman, and our brave police officer found him and killed him. Unfortunately, truly must have known who Lee was, and he waved Baker off. That You know, this is not the guy you're supposed to get kill. Lee consequently walked. Lee put down his Coke bottle in the little storage room, walked out the front door, okay? Why was Lee Oswald assigned to be one of the shooters in the Texas school book depository? Why did they put him there? Hmm. They could have put him anywhere. Hmm. There, were, there were one, two, three, four, five, six. There were seven positions. Right. Why did, put him, why did they put him in the depository? You want to guess? I'm not sure. I know confusion. he was confusion. confusion. He was similar to Harvey, so if anybody saw him, why they think uh, he was Harvey. Right. And sure yeah. enough, one person saw him. The lady who met him in the secretarial area. And when he came out of the building, he was seen by three women in a window of, of the uh, Daltex building. And he was seen by five uh, witnesses jump into a, a, rash rambler, a Nash Rambler and go tearing off down to Oak Cliff. Now, just to remind the viewers, when you say Harvey, you mean the Patsy yeah. Oswald and Lee is is the one that was the you think you think was the actual shooter was not the one that was the Patsy, right? Lee was the real one who was a, who was born with the name Harvey was a guy who worked in the depository and was killed by uh, Jack Ruby. So you can see that the entire story that the that the Baker and Truly gave to the Warren Commission was fabricated from beginning to end. This was a habit of the CIA. Hmm. There are two other stories, which I don't know if I'll have time or not, but uh, they fabricated two other stories, plus they fabricated the entire uh, life uh, story of, uh, quote, Lee Harvey Oswald, unquote. Okay. Let me see what I So that, that was the main thing I wanted to uh, point out in terms of the number of lies and, and falsifications and so on. Incidentally, uh, the Warren Commission altered several te- uh, uh, transcripts of testimonies of witnesses, one of which was Vicki. And uh, they put into Vicki's testimony that she passed Bill Shelley and uh, uh, Billy Lovelady, who we already know were not there. And they did, they did that with others. I remember reading uh, one a man who indignantly said, that's not my signature. And his testimony had been altered, and they had forged his signature. So the, those, those two weren't the only two. I, uh, I ran across others, but I don't, don't recall them. I just wanted to let you know we're at the 10-minute mark. I know you wanted me to to tell you that. Okay, thank you. Okay, so I won't have time to uh, tell uh, tell about this, but read it, read about it in the book. the The seven weeks before uh, Harvey left for New Orleans, that was between March third and March and uh, April, I believe, it was twenty fourth. The Warren Commission claimed that uh, Harvey and his wife 
and uh, his daughter, Jerome, the other girl wasn't born yet, had lived there for seven weeks. The only problem with that is there was no electricity in that apartment for that period of time. Whereas the same period of time, uh, the apartment where they had lived before, there was electricity. Mm. No one in the neighborhood ever saw uh, either Harvey or uh, Marina or the little girl. Uh, I went and uh, checked uh, the uh, street directory for uh, Dallas, and the street directory said nobody was living uh, in either that apartment or the downstairs apartment Mm. in 1963. Um, the uh, Warren Commission uh, claimed that there was a couple named George Gray, Mr. and Mrs. George Gray, who lived downstairs of the uh, Oswalds. Uh, No uh, reporter or investigator ever was able to find George Gray. No one was ever able to find the previous owner, a woman who supposedly sold the building uh, at the end of 1962, nobody was ever able to find an interview the supposed owner of uh, the uh, to this uh, duplex. And although all of the landlords who uh, where uh, Harvey lived in uh, Dallas, Irving, and New Orleans were interviewed. And they're all interviewed within two or three days, early April, April 3rd, April 4th, April 5th. Uh, the owner of the Neely Street was not interviewed until sometime in June. Hmm. And I finally came to the conclusion that this was a CIA safe house, and it was used to make the phony photograph of. Harvey in the back backyard of this house with his rifle, his supposed rifle, supposed rifle, supposed pistol, holding a couple of communist papers. And that photograph has been discredited by everybody, including uh, an expert, a military expert from Britain. Uh, nobody believes that. Hmm. You, you, all you have to do is look at it. Mm-hmm. And you, you can look at my book a very simple uh, uh, way. Uh, there's a blow-up of Harvey's face and also of the mugshot that was taken of Harvey. And you can see that the mugshot, Harvey has a almost pointed chin with a cleft in it, and the photograph of the backyard is a square chin. And the square, I mean, it's it's about two inches wide. Mm. You know, really, really square chin. Wow. And uh, some people did some photographic uh, analysis, and they can even show where it was pasted on, and it was pasted on, uh, his face was pasted on the picture just below his lower lip. So that was a total, total baloney. And uh, also the other one, uh, which I don't have time to go into a great deal, uh, is uh, the photograph that was taken <coughs> of... Uh, the moment that Kennedy was uh, received the first shot, and in the background is this is a is the image of the entranceway of the uh, depository, and uh, I found a, a really large blow up of this photograph online, and uh, it is very obvious. And I read accounts also, which explained it. Uh, so I, I understood exactly what was going on. But that that entranceway was doctored six or eight different ways. I don't have time to get into it. Mm. But uh, it, it was doctored uh, and uh, for, uh, I'll give you one example, which I don't understand. But uh, it was doctored. Apparently, Harvey was standing next to the west side of the entranceway, leaning against the entranceway. He said that Bill Shelley had been standing next to him. Mm-hmm. Now, Shelley and uh, Lovelady and another guy claimed all three of them were up at the top of the steps. However, you can see that the man to the left of 
uh, Harvey has been whited out. The guy to the left of him, who must have been Billy Lovelady, had his head blacked out. And the whole upper half of the entranceway is all black. And I found other pictures of approximately the same time, within 15 minutes. And there was, this was, remember, it was about 12.30. And it was a bright day, a sunny mm. day. And other pictures show what the entranceway looked like, the doors and everything right. else. This one is blacked out. That's, so anyway, a, that's in your book, too, I think, right? That picture? Yes, it is. Yeah. Yes, I remember it that. Is. I remember that. So what I want to uh, stress, you know, going back, this was a CIA operation. There were all, all kinds of other people involved. The mob was involved. The anti-Castro people were involved. There were people in the Pentagon who were involved. Uh, the... Um, some people feel Lyndon Johnson was involved. Uh, some people feel that some bankers in New York City were involved. Anyway, but the one who ran the whole thing is the CIA. And their hallmark is create as much confusion as you possibly can, hide everything, change everything, mm. invent uh, evidence, and so on. And this is why this, the whole Kennedy assassination has been so confusing and so infuriating, and uh, I, th I think, you know, that uh, this, this is very clear. Now, one of the things I want to go back to is these two guys, you know, Lee Oswald and Harvey Oswald, and nobody wants to go and admit this is, this is real. They're, you know, they act like, oh, you know, this is something unheard of. Well, it's not unheard of. Right. Because foreign governments have used twins. Right. In intelligence. So why is it so fantastic that the that the that the CIA, at the same time, a great many investigators at this time believe the CIA was responsible. So why do they think it's such a big leap to <laughs> say, "Oh, we believe it was the CIA, but we don't believe that the CIA set up the two guys"? I mean, that's nuts. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And uh, another book, which uh, you know people might want to read, except it's awfully long, and it's extremely hard to find, and extremely, and that's by. Uh, uh, John Armstrong, uh, Harvey and Lee, and uh, he's done about uh, 30 years uh, research, and uh, he spent about $100,000 of his own money. Wow, that's dedicated. And, uh, and the book is 1,000 pages long, and I managed to borrow it from Harvard, and uh, it, it's tiny print, and the pages are real big, so I can't imagine how many you know words are in there, a couple million. Right. And he has a CD on the back of it where he... Uh, has all the evidence. He's got photostats of all the evidence. Wow. So they can't, they can't accuse him. They're still accusing him of making it up. But he's got the evidence <laughs> in the back of it. So, you, know, you, can't, you can't make it up. Well, we're, so, we're getting pretty close. We have just two minutes left. Is there anything you wanted to kind of leave people with to, to think about? or? Yeah, what I want them to think about is that we can't afford to have things hidden. You know, right now we are starting to find out things that were done in the Trump administration. We can't have that kind of thing. The, the, we can't have a CIA and an FBI who today, 57 years later, refuse to go and release the uh, income tax forms of Lee Harvey Oswald and Margaret Oswald. Wow. What the heck? Wow. I mean, give me a break. Yeah, that's, that's a bit much. They have a minimum of what we know of 1,500 documents which they refuse to release. Uh, 57 years later, from a lone nut, okay? Yeah. A lone nut. That's and they a lot. released his income tax. Uh, Why? What kind of a lone nut is that? Huh? Yeah. Well, then we just have to keep asking for it, you know, as a public. Demand it. That we... People have. People have. They won't yeah. give it. They refuse to give some information to the Warren Commission. They refuse to give information to the House Select Commission Committee. Mm -hmm. And they're still sitting. And when, uh, when the, uh, Trump came into office, he was going to release it all. And they talked him into keeping 1,500 documents. 
Wow. Well, we're going to have to leave the audience with that. Thank you so much for coming back. Please, everybody, check out the book for yourself. It's an ebook. It's on Amazon under George Schwimmer, plus check out his other books. And thank you all for listening. Join us next time as we continue to explore the esoteric and the obscure together. <laughs>